Welcome to the Albanian Cafe, Episode 2, Intro to the Illyrians. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Albanian Cafe. I'm your host, Nicolin Tertulli, and today we will be focusing on the ancient Illyrians, a group of peoples that occupied what we now know as the Western Balkans. Before we begin, I want to take a moment to apologize for the delay in getting this and the next few episodes out. It's been a few months since our last episode, and I want to give you some updates. Naturally, I started off with a fairly rigid plan for the podcast, and since taking off, it has been adjusted significantly. I have also been busy with uh, other responsibilities outside of the podcast as well, but for now let's just talk about the changes. The biggest immediate change is that we are now going to spend a few episodes on the ancient Illyrians, which is more than I initially intended. I mentioned in the intro episode that we don't have a resource-rich environment when it comes to medieval sources for the Albanians, and the same goes for ancient sources concerning the Illyrians. We could have one episode dedicated to the Lyrians that goes over general information and we can call it a day, but I don't want to gloss over them so quickly. If we were to do that, it would be irresponsible for a few reasons. First and foremost, it would deprive you of a nuanced understanding of who they were. Secondly, the Illyrians are one of those ancient groups that never really occupy the center stage when it comes to ancient history. But the memory of the Illyrians becomes important from the 18th century onwards to the present day, especially for Albania. The memory of the Illyrians has been exploited by several nations, and to understand how that history gets reworked and manipulated, we'll have to establish a foundation rooted in primary sources. Lastly, it does give us an opportunity to talk about historiography and how history is written in this period. However, that's not going to be a primary focus, but an additional element to things. Also, it gives us opportunity to familiarize ourselves with other non-traditional sources. Most of us have heard of Herodotus, Thucydides, Homer, but there are a handful of other ancient sources that help us better understand this part of the world a whole lot better. As for other adjustments, we will be making some unexpected and some necessary detours through the ancient and medieval periods. However, most of the content will be bonus episodes made exclusively for patrons, and that content will mostly be contextual. Be on the lookout for further announcements on our Patreon page for more information. So without further delay, let's begin our episode on the Illyrians. I want to begin our discussion of the Illyrians by giving you a general landscape of the source material. Our knowledge of the Illyrians never really comes from the Illyrians themselves, and it's really important to note that. In the historical record early on, we get only snapshots of them from outside sources, mainly Greek and then later Roman. We get a better picture over time, but it still isn't clear. The first mentions of the Illyrians emerge around the 7th and 6th century BC, The word Illyria or Illyrian is mentioned in random sources that don't exclusively focus on them. However, once the Greek world began to expand, it's then that we get a better sense of who the Illyrians were because of their interactions with the Greeks. It isn't until the 3rd and 2nd century BCE where the Illyrians receive significant attention. 
This coincides with several developments, but mainly due to the expansion of ancient Macedonia and ancient Rome. Now, without getting too far ahead, the conflicts between the Illyrians and the Macedonians, and then later with the Romans, are some of the more consequential in the region and are recorded by several ancient authors. However, the focus is mostly centered on the Macedonians or the Romans. Now, while there is sufficient information for us to develop an understanding of the Illyrians, it can be problematic. Again, that is because we only have Greek or Roman sources that exclusively deal with them. The Illyrians didn't leave behind their language, or if they did, it doesn't exist now. So most ancient sources only briefly mention the Illyrians, and that leaves us only with an outside-in perspective rather than seeing things from the inside out. So let's think of it like this. Imagine that we are given a thousand-piece puzzle to put together. But as we're putting it together, we discover that we're missing about two-thirds of the pieces, specifically the ones that compose the center. Now, we all know that that would be particularly frustrating, and we probably would just not bother to complete the puzzle to begin with. But let's say you did because you wanted to see how far you can get. You would work your way around putting together the border and only get so far before you run out. And in my humble opinion, that is essentially what it comes down to when we are looking at the Illyrians. I'm going to apologize right now for being redundant, but I really want to drive home that our knowledge is limited. We only know how the Greeks or Romans talked about the Illyrians, but often we gain more insights about how the ancient Romans or the ancient Greek societies viewed themselves rather than gaining insights on the Illyrians. For both societies, the Illyrian was just another example of the many barbarians at the edge of their respective worlds. At times, ancient authors presented the Illyrians as the, say, antithesis of what a proper Greek or Roman should be. I will venture to say that, conceptually, Illyrian often served as a rhetorical device more than anything, and that was true for ancient historians through to comedians of that time period. Now, a major consequence emanating from our scarcity of sources is that we often are wandering into theoretical discussions, sometimes knowingly and sometimes unknowingly. Our knowledge is limited, and there aren't many features of Illyrian culture and society that we can talk about with 100% confidence or accuracy. The bulk of the scholarship that focuses on this field has done a good job in addressing this reality, but when we study this part of history, it's important to be critical, skeptical, and to think logically. That's true of any subject, but especially for this one here. There are lots of what-ifs, might-have-beens, and could-have-beens when talking about the Illyrians. So we get into this position of periodically going back to the written sources, examining what we have, um, and reworking or building our understanding of the Illyrians. As a side note, archaeological evidence does help us a lot better to understand the Illyrians. In fact, in some cases, archaeological evidence helps us tell a better narrative than some of the written sources that we have. Now, let's make a quick digression into what the scholarship looks like. I mentioned that most of us wouldn't bother putting that puzzle together, um, and that, again, in my humble opinion, is what happens when it comes to studying the Illyrians, uh, at least outside of Southeast Europe. 
The scholarship is limited, and let me say that there are some very skilled and talented academics that have focused on this subject, but this field does not attract that much attention. There are some flagship articles and texts that carry some significant weight, but it's not a particularly robust field. However, that goes for most of us out here in the West. There are plenty of scholars that focus on Illyrian studies in Europe, some of which I would love to get on the podcast in the future. Now, we will not be evaluating academic work on the podcast, but we will be going over two trends that do impact Illyrian studies, but we'll do that in later episodes. With that said, I will be citing the sources that I find to be helpful in shaping our understanding of the subject, so check the blog post for further reference. I have one more flag before we begin. As we go over the subject, we are going to touch on some national sensitivities. Now, for those of us who live outside of the region and are unfamiliar, the Illyrians occupy a special place in some cultural and nationalist movements. Since the turn of the 19th and 20th century, Western Balkan states have made significant efforts to establish connections with themselves and the ancient Illyrians. In some cases, or in most cases, it was to undermine or promote territorial claims within the region. So it's easy to come across content regarding the Illyrians that had, let's say, particular aims in the past. And some of that spills over into the present day. We'll be going over some items that may be controversial, and I want to highlight that when we do, our goal is to be balanced and neutral, regardless of who the stakeholders are. All right, well, that's enough uh, for that now. Let's actually talk about the Illyrians. So who were the Illyrians? Where did they come from? What language did they speak? How many of them were there? What did they do? And more importantly, what is their relevance? Well, let's first paint a picture of the region as a whole. At this point in the 7th and 6th century BCE, Southeast Europe looked a little like this. You had the Greeks occupying the Peloponnese up through the Pindus Mountains and with colonies springing up everywhere. In the east, along what is modern-day Macedonia, Bulgaria, and European Turkey, you have the Thracians. Directly north of the Thracians in modern-day Romania are the Dacians. And stretching across from Western Europe all the way through the Hungarian plain were the Celts. Along the northern Adriatic coast, you had the Liburnians in what is now northern Croatia and Slovenia. And the Illyrians were found in between all of these groups. We can think of the Illyrians as one of the successors of the Indo-European groups that settled in Southeast Europe, which we assume migrated to the area around or before 1000 BCE. Now, the Indo-Europeans, for those of you who are unfamiliar, are a group of peoples that migrated to Europe from somewhere in Central Asia or the Northern Indian subcontinent. As some of you may know, Indo-European, or Proto-Indo-European, was a Neolithic language which we understand is where modern languages uh, arose from. Now, it's unadvisable to say that there was a particular conception point for the Illyrians, given how little we know. However, we can think of the Illyrians, or more accurately, Illyrian culture, coming out of a mixture between Paleo-Balkan inhabitants and the Indo-European migrants. Let's consider what their language was like. Given their proximity to the Indo-Europeans, we can safely say with confidence that they spoke some form of Indo-European. 
or whatever emerged after they began mixing with the Paleo-Balkan inhabitants. Lack of archaeological evidence makes it difficult to say anything definitive beyond this point. What we do know about the Illyrian language is that it came in the form of coinage and grave markings, which normally just bear the names of a particular ruler in an area or someone of significance, and certainly the name of that location. So it's mostly just names and places. We don't even know if the Illyrians called themselves that to begin with. The word Illyrian is used in Greek sources, and it isn't until the 2nd century BCE until its usage is expanded to include all of the tribes in the Western Balkans. But what we can infer from the ancient sources is that Illyrian tribes had similar customs and practices, or at least they did when it came to the Greek and Romans who observed them. We can safely assume that many Illyrian tribes, most of them, could communicate with each other, but they had some variations. It's important to remember that language never remains constant and that it is always evolving. So if we think of the entirety of ancient Illyria as speaking one similar language or dialect when they migrated into the Balkans, we have to assume that they also developed like a vernacular with their many neighbors. With the exception of some tribes that lived in remote areas, of course, we can infer that the Illyrian language evolved alongside Celtic, Thracian, Doric Greek, and Latin. Now, ancient borders were fluid, so there was plenty of cross-pollination going on. We see this manifest in Illyrian coastal communities. Given the fact that they were so close to such important commercial areas, we see the region adopt Greek and Latin more quickly than inland. We can't forget what we covered in our last episode, too. The Western Balkans are a perfect place for a group of people to hide out for the centuries. So it's not a stretch to imagine that within the region, the Illyrian language remained in usage in isolated mountain valleys and remote villages throughout the centuries. But I would like to iterate that language is fluid and it is always evolving. Now, I want to make a brief digression. There is a general discussion, or better yet, an oral history that takes place in coffee shops, schools, and everywhere in between that the modern Albanian language has its roots in ancient Illyrian. Unfortunately, we don't have any way of comparing the two. The Illyrian language is dead, and modern Albanian is all we have. There isn't anything we can say about the two together that isn't bedeviled by lack of evidence and by efforts of 19th and 20th century intellectuals and politicians. Now, things are muddled for us because some names and places have been reinserted into the Albanian lexicon over the last few centuries. There have been policies by almost every Albanian government to encourage the usage of Illyrian names and tribes, and they've sponsored studies concerning the Illyrians. These policies were embraced on the right and the left from King Zog to Enver Hoxha. Now, if you don't know who those two are, just stay tuned, we'll get to them eventually. But what makes the discussion muddled is that in some cases, parents were encouraged to name their children what were deemed traditional Albanian names. And by traditional Albanian names, they meant Illyrian. So you have a significant amount of association between the two groups, but no concrete way of connecting the two. Now, I'm making this digression really quickly because it's an example of how history gets reworked and how it plays a role in our everyday lives. 
We're going to cover this in more depth in the future because it certainly merits a lengthy discussion, but I just want to flag this for you all right now. So let's go over some Illyrian tribes. Now we can say that there are at least 40 or so Illyrian tribes in the ancient world. It's difficult to put an exact number on them. Our knowledge of the Illyrians expanded as time progressed, and with that progression, more tribes started popping up within our sources. There is an ongoing debate among scholars of ancient history that primarily focuses on the question of whether or not some of these tribes can be properly considered Illyrian. This discussion mostly focuses on the usage of the word Illyrian from the 7th and 6th century through to the Roman conquest. We will pay some special attention to this, but for now just know that the term Illyrian was used to identify a certain group of tribes, and then it became something of a broader label in Roman accounts. It should come as no surprise that the tribes that we have the most information on are the ones that are geographically closest to the Greeks and Romans. Now, I want to apologize. Even after extensive research, it's very difficult to find some of the accurate pronunciations for these tribes, so I am probably going to butcher several, if not all of them. But some of the major tribes are the Ardii, the Talantii, Dardani, Bolones, Enkelii, Parthini, and the Pannonians. Okay. I could list off a few more, but I would only be doing you a disservice by butchering their names. The reason we know so much about the tribes that I just mentioned is because that they did come to loggerheads with the Greeks and the Romans at one point or another. The Talantii, Bolognese, and the Parthini bordered the Greeks in what is now central and southern Albania. The Dardani and Ancalii fought major battles with the Macedonians and lived in what is now roughly Kosovo and western Macedonia. The Ardii and Pannonians lived in what is now Montenegro and northern Albania, and they came into frequent contact with commercial vessels, be it Greek or Roman. Now, out of all of the tribes that I mentioned, we're going to be focusing significantly on the Ardii, the Talantii, and the Dardani. Now, much like their contemporaries in the ancient world, each tribe had its own authority over a particular region, and their allegiances would change with every circumstance. This contributed to the Illyrians fighting with their neighbors together and separately, fighting amongst themselves, sometimes even with the help of their neighbors. Now, each tribe had their own practices, but when it came down to governing themselves, it normally was run by a council of elders that was composed of notable men with a single chieftain or ruler. But in some later Roman sources, we find out that some Illyrian tribes allowed women in leadership and military roles as well. So it isn't a stretch to say that most Illyrian tribes had some sort of patriarchal system and tribal structure in place. Now, each tribe oversaw their own affairs, and there was not any centralization among Illyrians, at least not that we know of before the arrival of the Greeks and Romans. However, in the 4th and 3rd century BCE, there is an emergence of what appears to be an Illyrian kingdom under the authority of the Ardii. 
Now, it's hard to determine the origins of this kingdom. It's unclear if it was maybe a consolidation of Illyrian tribes, or if it was simply just the RDI subjecting all the other nearby tribes. Whatever the case, they were the big player in the region. Their seat of power was Skodra, now modern-day Skodr in Albania. From here, the RDI established a dynasty that ruled much of present-day Montenegro, Kosovo, and northern Albania. From what we can infer, its emergence corresponds directly with Roman and Greek economic and territorial expansion. Within the next couple episodes, we'll go over in detail and give a narrative of the events that gave rise to the RDI and what brought them into conflict with the Romans. Now, let's really quickly touch on what Illyrian economic life looked like. Some Illyrian tribes were very wealthy and some were not. Some tribes were wealthy enough to raise large armies and even build navies and establish permanent settlements. On the other side, you had tribes that were poor, that relied heavily on pastoralism or subsistence-level agriculture, and were often forced into servitude by larger tribes. Illyrians were predominantly pastoralists, but they were growing alongside the rest of the world, and in the 6th century, they soon had skilled craftsmen, fishers, farmers, traders, and merchants. As we'll see, Illyrians had access to arable land, freshwater fish, and plenty of livestock that made them ideal trade partners for the ancient Greeks and Romans. Now, by the 6th century, Greek city-states had significantly expanded. They had sponsored colonies and established special economic relationships with those colonies. Keep in mind that Southeast Europe was not a bastion of agricultural production. The terrain is rugged and arable land is scarce in some places. City-states or colonies couldn't depend on themselves alone, especially once they grew to a certain size. So naturally, it was necessary for them to rely on maritime trade to bring in resources that they were lacking. With trade in the Mediterranean expanding, this naturally influenced the lives of the Illyrians. This encouraged Illyrians to engage with the ancient Greeks. Sometimes these engagements were friendly, for example... Epidominus, which was established at the request of local Illyrian tribes, uh, the Talandii specifically, because they wanted to have a trade center with the Greeks. There were also some instances where relations between the ancient Greeks and Illyrians were hostile because they eventually began to compete over resources and trade routes. This led to the Illyrians participating in piracy in the Adriatic Sea and the Ionian Sea, and they fought major ground wars with the Macedonians and Greeks later on. We'll explore these complex relationships in the next coming episodes, but the key takeaway is that for many Illyrian tribes, they were beginning to be integrated what was becoming a larger Mediterranean world and economy. But for now, let's take a quick break. I want to say thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for their generosity. It's because of your contributions that we are able to keep the podcast going. Now, if you are just tuning in and interested in supporting the podcast, you can make a contribution on our Patreon page. Becoming a patron will give you early access to episodes and bonus content. Contributions go towards the basic utility fees for the podcast, and any amount helps. So once again, thank you for your generous support, and stay tuned for some upcoming announcements and bonus content.
All right, welcome back. Now it's time to shift gears and look at what religion looked like for the Illyrians. Now, the Illyrians have been pretty complex in terms of their language and society, so it should be no surprise that religion is any different. Illyrians believed in many gods, deities, and spirits. We can confidently say that Illyrian culture was polytheistic. Most of their deities focused on natural phenomenon, as was the case with most cultures at the time. The Illyrians had gods for the sea, sun, sky, earth, and everything in between. There were even elements of shamanism and totemism, and certain animals were held in special positions of reverence for each tribe. There were also elements of ancestor worship found in their culture. Now, each Illyrian tribe was different, and each oversaw their own religious aspects. Our understanding is that there wasn't a uniform or widespread cosmology for the Illyrians. What I mean by that is, from what we know, there wasn't a particular rubric that the Illyrians followed when it came down to religious practices. So in this environment, we can think of the Illyrians as having a creative relationship with their religious beliefs. Much like their tribal affiliations, it isn't a stretch to imagine Illyrians embracing and abandoning certain deities when the time came for it. This also made them particularly open to embracing the Greek pantheon over time and Christianity later on. Now, this may not have been true for some of the tribes in the interior, but we know that some Illyrians embraced some form of Hellenization as the region along the coast developed. So it's fortunate that we have plenty of archaeological evidence available to draw on some conclusions about Illyrian religion and broader culture to an extent. In most cases, when culture was brought up in written sources, it's often being critiqued and lacks detail. So archaeological evidence helps us to get to know the Illyrians far better. There are two major cultural and religious components of Illyrian life that I want to highlight here today. We know from inscriptions on statues, coinage, tombs, ceramics, metallurgy, and other artifacts that the Illyrians really cared about the sun and serpents. There are other themes, but these are the two big ones. Now, reverence for both was not uncommon for Indo-Europeans or anyone else in the area for the matter. The sun is obviously one of the most important celestial bodies in regards to our lives, and serpents in the ancient world were associated with many positive forces such as fertility, protection, and rebirth. Now, the ancient Greeks, Thracians, and Celts all had reverence for serpents, and in fact, most stories and mythologies that focused around creation of the world or a people included them in some capacity. Often when we see serpents as decorative pieces on belts, coins, and artwork in general, but their imagery was also placed on shields and helmets. Serpents were universally respected, and we see their imagery in many places from Skodra to all the way down to Apollonia. The same goes for the sun as well. We see the sun depicted in similar fashion in the same places. Now, there may be many years between us and the Illyrians, but there still is a remnant of Illyrian culture that holds true to contemporary Albanian culture today. What I'm talking about is the modern-day festival called Ditae Veris, which translates to roughly Day of Summer or the Summer Day. It celebrates what we now know as the Spring Equinox. 
But as we know it, for the Illyrians, it signified the beginning of summer and a new year. As we understand it, the Illyrians only saw two seasonal cycles within a year, the summer, then the winter. Today, Dita Iveris is celebrated each year on March 14th on the Gregorian calendar, which puts it in between the official date of March 20th and the meteorological date of March 1st. Historically, Dita Iveris was celebrated by venerating various deities along with the sun, but other gods and goddesses were incorporated as well. Today, it is still celebrated, but just a bit differently. These days, Albanian families normally commemorate the festival by preparing certain dishes and by lighting ceremonial fires throughout the country. Today, Dita Iveris is celebrated by most Albanians, but the heart of the festival takes place in the central Albanian city of Elbasan. The festival may have some pre-Christian roots, but overall the holiday provides an opportunity for communities to get together, to dance, eat, celebrate the coming of summer, and overall just have a good time. Alright, so now we're approaching our last section for today's episode, and we're going to be shifting gears to talk about archaeology. Most of what we'll cover today is going to be primarily focused on graves. That's because graves hold an important role in understanding the Illyrians because they are essentially giving us a direct line to understanding them. Most archaeological sites that pertain to the Illyrians normally come in the form of burial mounds, most of which have been dated between the 11th century BCE onward to the 3rd century BCE. It coincides nicely where we're starting. For this episode, we're just going to focus on one burial mound located in what is now southern Albania. It will reflect some things that we've already discussed, and it'll also help us better understand the dynamic nature of the region as a whole. The site that we're going to be looking at is called the Lofkend Tumulus. Now, for those of you that might be wondering, Tumulus is just another term for a burial mound. Now, the Lofken Tumulus is about 20 to 30 kilometers southeast of the city of Fier in Albania. The reason why we're looking at this burial mound in particular is because it's only about 40 and 50 kilometers away from Apollonia. It's also dated to before and at the same time when Apollonia was established. So, if you're just tuning in, in the last episode I mentioned two significant Greek colonies that were established in Illyrian territory. Epidamnus was the first settlement established, and then came Apollonia. So, that puts the Lofkan Tumulus in a place where the cultural, economic, and territorial dynamics began to shift somewhat as we understand it. And the mound gives us some key insights to those developments. Now, we don't know how the Illyrians decided where they were going to bury their dead. It's anyone's guess whether they had any sacred locations or if they just randomly picked a spot and said, yeah, this looks good and this looks like a decent place. But what we know from Lofkend is that once they did pick a location, they stuck with it for a significant amount of time. The Lofkend tumulus likely served a community of small to medium-sized villages in the surrounding area. But we do know that they routinely returned to bury their dead and participate in burial ceremonies, and they also made offerings to their dead. We know the latter because of some significant artifacts discovered outside of and in between the graves. There have been over 60 graves excavated at the site, and thankfully the mound seems to have been relatively preserved and no major shifts in the soil had occurred over time. 
Most of the graves had an east-west orientation, which does coincide nicely with the movement of the sun, but however, that could just be coincidence. Some graves also were placed in a southeast-northwest position. The graves were placed on top of one another, so the oldest graves were situated at the bottom of the mound, and the top contained the earliest. There hasn't been a major find in Lufkend. Now, I don't want to downplay it because there are some significant finds, but there wasn't like a major jackpot moment where they uncovered the grave of someone of significance. The significant items that were found in Lufkend were personal items like jewelry, iron tools, and weapons. However, there even was a grave where someone was buried along with a lamb, which is peculiar and we can only speculate why. Some graves contained several people buried, and it seemed that in some entire families were buried together, or families were buried together over time. Of the most significant finds, there were clay pots found above some graves towards the top of the mound. Scholars have concluded that these are offerings to the dead, but their significance lies in where they came from. Once they were excavated, they had been identified as Corinthian, which is not a surprise at all. Apollonia was founded by Greeks from Corsaira, which is modern-day Corfu, and Corinthians. Now, this is important for several reasons. The first and foremost is that we know the communities were not just aware of each other, but they were engaged in trade. The Illyrians around Lofkend valued Greek crafts enough to offer it to their dead, but as we just get to this point, the Illyrians stopped using the burial mound. The reason I'm highlighting this particular site is because it shows us the limits of our understanding. Certainly for this particular community, but for also Illyrians as a whole. In this instance, we know the Illyrians valued Greek craftsmanship, gifted it to their dead, but that is it. It all comes back down to one of the main points I made earlier in the episode. Without any Illyrian writings, we are left only to speculate on certain matters. We can speculate that the Illyrians near Lufkend moved towards Apollonia, embraced urbanization, became Hellenized. We can think of the Greeks having driven them out of the area. And we can think that the Illyrians simply just stopped coming to Lufkend because they were semi-nomadic and it was about time they found somewhere else to set up shop. There's nothing immediately wrong with these speculations, but there isn't significant evidence to back up those assumptions, and that's what we get into frequently when discussing the Illyrians. Alright, so that concludes our introductory episode for the Illyrians. We have covered a lot of information today, and there is plenty more left that we can talk about. We can spend a long time going over the Illyrians, but I'm going to try and keep it as concise as I can. In the following episodes, we'll be focusing on Greek and Roman primary sources. We'll look at all mentions of the Illyrians, and we'll examine how they were perceived in those accounts, and we'll broadly go over some significant wars and diplomatic events as well. The conversation going forward will probably be more academic in nature, but we'll be sure to liven things up. So if you're interested in hearing more about the Illyrians, tune in in the next couple weeks because we'll be going over some interesting material. If you have any questions, send me an email at info at thealbaniancafe.com or shoot us a message on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I want to hear from you. And if there is enough interest, we might even do a Q&A episode where I'll sit down and answer some of our listeners' questions. 
Once again, I want to thank you for listening to The Albanian Cafe. I'm your host, Nicklin, and until next time, Miro Pavshim e the Uroi Shindet.